You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for joining us. On Monday, we launch our first Detroit Today book club, a community read of Matthew Desmond's Evicted. His Pulitzer Prize-winning work focuses on extreme poverty in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in a black inner-city neighborhood and a white trailer park. In Evicted, we follow a few families and individuals who are searching for a home, a stable place to be with family and friends, and avoid what becomes a cycle of eviction and poverty. We're going to read this book together and measure Desmond's findings against our own experiences here in Detroit and the metro region, where most eviction isn't landlord-driven, but based on tax foreclosure. We kick off our book club on Monday at Source Booksellers in Midtown Detroit at 6.30 p.m. Come chat with me and the Detroit Today team about housing here in southeast Michigan. But let's start our our community conversation on evicted here with the author. Here's part of the conversation I had with Matthew Desmond when his book first came out. I asked him about one of his central premises, that eviction is a driver of poverty rather than a symptom. You know, America has so much poverty, and it's really different than other wealthy democracies for the depth and expanse of its poverty. And I wanted to understand that, and I wanted specifically to figure out how housing uh, plays a role in driving poverty in the American city. So I spent a lot of time uh, living in poor neighborhoods and following families getting evicted from their homes. And, you know, I, you know, it's just really clear to me after years and years of studying this that eviction is a cause, not just a condition of poverty. Families not only lose their homes, but they often lose their possessions, which are either kind of thrown from their homes or taken by movers. And sometimes they just can't keep up the payments, which movers require to store their things. The biggest eviction moving company in Milwaukee told me that about 70% of their eviction moves just get thrown in the dump. Children lose their schools. You know, families lose their communities and their opportunity to bond with their neighbors. We have really good evidence that workers lose their jobs after eviction. And anyone listening out there that has gone through something like that knows why. You know, it's a consuming, stressful, overwhelming event that can cause you to make mistakes on your job, show up late, uh, and eventually lose it. Yeah. Uh, then you have to recognize the effect that eviction has on your spirit, your, your uh, mental health. So we do. We do find that mothers who are evicted have higher rates of depressive symptoms two years later. Evictions that go through the court have a record, and just like a criminal record can affect things like your access to government services or your job prospects, an eviction record can have real effects on your life too. It can affect your credit. A lot of landlords will turn you away if you have an eviction record. A lot of public housing authorities count evictions as strikes when you apply for public housing. And that's why we know evicted family move into uh, worse neighborhoods and worse housing after they're forced out. So you add all that up, and it's really hard not to conclude that eviction isn't just another kind of um, another kind of slice, you know, another kind of cut right. in terms of poverty, but it's really casting people on a d- different and, and harder path. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to read a little bit from the prologue uh, in your book, uh, Cold City. At the end, you say, fewer and fewer families can afford a roof over their head. This is among the most urgent and pressing issues facing America today, and acknowledging the breadth and depth of the problem changes the way we look at poverty. For decades, we focused mainly on jobs, public assistance, 
parenting and mass incarceration. No one can deny the importance of these issues, but something fundamental is missing. We've failed to fully appreciate how deeply housing is implicated in the creation of poverty. Not everyone living in a distressed neighborhood is associated with gang members, parole officers, employers, social workers, or pastors but nearly all of them have a landlord. Let's talk about that landlord role uh, in your book, which is which I should tell the listeners is written in this wonderfully narrative uh, style. Uh, I know you are an academic and a scholar, uh, and and of course the the work is dutifully footnoted uh, and and written in that form. But it's also in this wonderfully accessible. Uh, language and voice, uh, and and you tell the story, the stories of uh, people who live in in uh, in in housing that is managed by landlords, and the relationships between the renters and the landlords sort of take center stage in your mm-hmm. in your stories. Mm-hmm. You know, they take center stage in the lives of many poor Americans. I still think that a lot of us that don't live in the inner city or don't live in trailer parks, think that the typical low-income family lives in public housing or benefits some way from housing assistance. But the opposite is true. Only about one in four families that qualify for any kind of housing assistance receive anything, which would be unthinkable in terms of distributing aid for other basic necessities, right? So what if we turned away three and four families that applied for food stamps, for example? But that's exactly how we treat housing in America. So today, most low-income families live completely unassisted in the private rental market. And you're right, it's become harder and harder for them to afford the roof over the head. We've reached a point in America where about half of all poor renting families in this country are spending at least 50% of their income on housing. And one in four of those families are spending at least 70% just on rent and utilities. So under those conditions, eviction has become inevitable. And I think that the book really kind of starts on the ground and ends on the ground. It kind of believes that, you know, showing the human cost of this problem, you know, showing people in their full complexity, not only landlords, but but tenants as well, um, is deeply connected to helping us understand this, you know, in an intimate way and is connected to reform. Yeah, yeah. Um, And one of the things that uh, this this book takes place uh, in in Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin, is where you did the the reporting and found the families who are are featured here. Talk about about that community and the role that that this problem plays in that that place in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yeah, you know, Milwaukee is a city of about 105,000 renter households. And every year in that city, about 40 people a day are evicted from their homes. You know, they're evicted in the winter. They're evicted in the summer. They're evicted when it's cold and raining. They're evicted when it's warm. Um, That's a whole heck of a lot of people. Uh, But it's only formal court-ordered evictions. These are evictions that go through the court. And a lot of landlords I met, they had different ways of moving a family out. You know, some landlords would pay you if you uh, left by Sunday. I met a landlord that just takes your door off if you're behind. And we did a lot of work in our survey to kind of capture all those informal evictions and found that about one in eight of all renters in the city of Milwaukee experience a forced move every two years. It's an astoundingly high number. And I think that, you know, the numbers are one thing, but the stories are something else. And I, um, I'm thinking of Arlene, for example, who's mm-hmm. a single mom, 
that I met in Milwaukee, and she was trying to raise two boys, and uh, she was living in a rundown two-bedroom apartment in a in a very poor neighborhood in the fourth poorest city in the country, paying 88% of her income to rent, you know? And she was facing these terrible decisions, you know? Can I can I afford to feed my kids or do I pay the rent? You know, uh, should I pitch in some money for the funeral or pay the rent? You know, under those conditions, eviction isn't, you know, the result of irresponsibility as much as inevitability. And it's blunting those children's capacity. And it's, it's, it's making moms like Arlene face truly terrible uh, decisions. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Matthew Desmond, the author of Evicted Poverty and Profit in the American City. We are talking about the role that eviction plays in poverty. Uh, is it a uh, episodic kind of thing or is it a defining feature of poverty? Matthew Desmond sort of casts it as a defining feature of poverty. One of the things that keeps people poor or causes their poverty. I want to read another uh, passage uh, from the book uh, and, and sort of change the, 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 the subject a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Um, in, a, in a chapter called Hot Water, you talk about uh, the, the choices that landlords face when people fall behind. Mm-hmm. He said, when tenants fall behind, uh, he, Tobin, one of the, the landlords you profile here, had three options. He could let it slide and watch his income fall. He could begin eviction proceedings or he could start a conversation. Option one was a non-option. Tobin was a landlord to make a living and if he was too lenient, he could lose his business. But Tobin also did not evict most tenants who owed him. Pushing tenants out and pulling new ones in costs money too. In an average month, 40 of Tobin's tenants were behind. In nearly one-third of the trailer park, the average tenant owed $340. But Tobin only evicted a handful of tenants each month. A landlord could be too soft or too hard. The money was in the middle with the third route and his tenants and were grateful for it, though often not at first. The role of money here, uh, I think, it really plays it really uh, plays an interesting uh, uh, part in the, in the narrative here. That sort of tension between the landlords and the tenants uh, defined by how much money can I get and uh, that that. That uh, that uncertainty about should I put this person out uh, boils down not to what effect will it have on that person's life, but what effect will that have on my business? It is a business, and you know people like Tobin uh, got into it uh, to make a living. You know, and um, and I think that we let ourselves off the hook if we say, oh, you know, these tenants—they're just irresponsible, or oh, these landlords are just greedy. You know, the fact of the matter is it's much more complicated than that. And if we really want to understand the link between housing and poverty, we have to plumb that complication. And so the book works really hard to capture landlords' perspectives, to understand what they have to go through, to understand why they, why would you buy a trailer park? You know, what's in it for you? And what, what was in it for Tobin uh, was, was a profit that was, um, in, my, in my estimation, uh, not modest. So... Tobin's job was not easy. You know, he often confronted things that um, one confronts when living in a really uh, low-income trailer park, things like addiction and violence, things like people not being able to pay their rent often. Uh, he paid for funerals. He um, bailed tenants out of jail. 
he let tenants slide. He worked with some tenants, but he also evicted a fair amount too. Uh, in the end, I reviewed Tobin's rent rolls and paid attention to missed payments and vacancies, his mortgage payments and tax records, and calculated that he took home about $470,000 a year. Wow. Um, after expenses. You know, that's about 30 times what his tenants working minimum wage full-time took home and about 50 times what his tenants receiving disability took home every year. And so there is a business model um, at the bottom of the market. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, talk about Sharina, uh, mm-hmm. who is another landlord who shows up throughout uh, the book. I thought I thought your your portrayal of her also got to the human side of yeah. this. That the, these are not just uh, the, the 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 landlords are not painted uh, as as just sort of greedy monsters uh, in, in every case. Uh, they have they have struggles too. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, you know, Sharina showed me that very clearly. You know, Sharina was Arlene's landlord. She uh, owned 36 units, all in uh, inner city African-American communities. She had been a landlord for four years. Before that, she was a a public school teacher, elementary school teacher. And she saw herself as a charitable businesswoman. And I saw Sharina buy Arlene groceries. I saw her let tenants move in with nothing. I saw her... um, you know, really work with tenants when they fell on hard times. And I saw her evict tenants when they called a building inspector to report housing violations. I saw her be um, callous with some tenants and, and um, loving and generous with others. I, it is really complicated um, a relationship. And I think that, you know, the point, right, isn't that <laughs> there are some good landlords and bad landlords or good tenants and bad tenants. That's not the point. It's that this is housing, right? This is shelter, this is something that is a fundamental human need. Without stable shelter, everything else falls apart. We, do, we can't give kids an opportunity to stay in school and flourish. We can't give people an opportunity to stick around their communities and invest if we don't have stable shelter. So this thing, maybe that shouldn't come down to landlord's discretion. Maybe that shouldn't come down to do you have a good landlord uh, or a callous one. This is something that's much more important um, that that should be reduced to just you know a commodity that cashes out, right? Um, and so, what's the what's the turn that you think uh, cities like Milwaukee, cities like Detroit, uh, where I'm sure you could come and do uh, very similar work uh, to what you did in Milwaukee? What's the turn that you think we need to make in the way we think of this problem and how we how we address it? Yeah. So. With respect to how we think about it, I think we need to have a conversation, a public conversation that addresses this question. Is housing a right? You know, is access to decent, affordable, stable shelter, is that something that should be part of what it means to be an American? And I think we have to answer yes, just because it's so central to human flourishing. You know, we've affirmed provision in old age, access to decent education, um, you know, access to basic nutrition, We've affirmed those things as rights in this country because we believe without those, there's no chance at economic mobility and no chance at accessing the freedoms uh, our country offers. You know, most basically the freedom to better yourself, better your kids, invest in your community. And so I think that we should turn to, to this conversation. Is housing a right? And there's a way to deliver on that. You know, and one way is to take this program that we already have, which is the housing voucher program, and expand it to all families below 
a certain income level. Uh-huh. And so that would mean like of someone like Arlene would not give 88% of her income to rent, but would spend 30% on it, which has long been our ideal in America, that grandmothers like Lorraine, who I met in the trailer park, would not have to kind of grow old, you know, spending 70% of their income to rent a trailer. Uh, instead, she spent 30%. And you could take that voucher and you could spend it uh, anywhere you'd like, as long as your housing wasn't too expensive or too run down. It would fundamentally change the face of poverty in America. Uh, homelessness would plummet. Evictions might become rare again, as they were. And, um, and these families would benefit in so many ways. We already know from research that when families finally get a housing voucher after years and years and years on a waiting list, they do one consistent thing, and they go to the grocery store, and they buy more food. Right. You know, and their kids become stronger and healthier. But kids like Arlene's kids aren't getting enough to eat because the rent eats first. We can do better as a country. Now, you know, cities are different, right? Like what what works in Detroit might not work in New York City. You know, we need, you know, one city has to build, one city has to destroy. But whatever our solution out of this mess, one thing is certain, we don't have to accept this. And I think we have to realize that we can't fix poverty in the country without fixing housing. And and I would imagine that landlords might welcome that kind of change as well, given given the problems that you outline in the book that affect them. I mean, it's not it's not easy. It's not cheap. Uh, I, I don't imagine that they even feel good about the efforts that they have to make to put people out of their homes. If you had more access to housing vouchers, the landlords would benefit too. I remember one time Sharina was facing this um, situation where a man named Lamar in the book, who uh-huh. is this gregarious, um, just kind of energetic single dad, you know, and he was he was a double amputee, so he, he was in a wheelchair, and he was trying to raise these two boys, you know, and he was like a he was like the house all the neighborhood boys went to, you know, and they'd play cards and he'd kind of mentor them, bring them up, you know, watch over them, uh, keep an eye on them. Mm-hmm. And he fell behind. And, you know, Sharina, you know, Sharina kind of loved Lamar. You know, she, she, she would say that, you know. Um, but when she was kind of facing this decision, you know, to evict Lamar or not, her and her husband, Quentin, were kind of debating it. And she told Quentin, you know, I love Lamar, but love don't pay the bills. Uh, the last time I checked, the mortgage company still wanted their, their check. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that's, that's, that's right. Landlords do struggle with these decisions too. And I think a universal housing uh, pro- program would give us a chance to um, rebalance the landlord-tenant relationship to provide landlords a living, but also provide tenants a home. And look, if we're going to house most of our low-income families in the private market, landlords have to be at the table. Right. Uh, let's talk about what the floor right now is for housing yeah. vouchers. Uh, why does someone like Arlene, for instance, not qualify. We haven't made an investment as a nation in in this good, you know. And so the reason isn't because she doesn't qualify. The reason isn't that she's rejected. There's just literally not enough aid to go around. And so you know the waiting list for public housing, for example, in some of our bigger cities is not counted in years. It's counted in decades. So if you're like a single parent in Washington D.C. Uh, and you apply for public housing, you might be a grandparent by the time your application comes up. I remember going uh, with Arlene once who just stopped by the housing authority on a whim, you know, just to apply, just kind of, you know, what the heck, you know. And um, she was told by the woman behind the glass that, you know, the list is frozen. The list is frozen. 
And what she meant was, you know, we're not accepting any more applications because we already have a list of over 3,000 people that have applied for housing assistance years ago. So if Arlene wanted a housing voucher, what she'd have to do is wait several years until the list unfroze, then wait another several years until her name made it to the top of the pile. And then she would just have to pray that the person reviewing her application would ignore all the evictions that she'd collected while trying to make ends meet with very little income uh, in the private market. Right. And so right. that's that's the situation we're facing today. Yeah. That was my interview with Matthew Desmond, the author of Evicted. We are launching a Detroit Today book club community read of Evicted this Monday at Source Booksellers in Midtown Detroit at 6.30 p.m. Over the next couple of months, we will work through the book with in-depth conversations about housing insecurity live on air at in-community events and on Facebook. To find out more information about the launch event, visit WDET.org or the WDET Facebook page. That's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow. I hope you will too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.